this Sunday between Christmas and Easter, always, you may or may not, or Christmas and Easter, yeah, Christmas and New Year's, you can tell that I've been going Christmas crazy, between Christmas and New Year's always presents a preacher challenges, Uh, so this morning what we're going to do is, rather than kind of doing some completely standalone sermon, is as I was thinking about it, I thought... And we've been talking about uh, last Sunday and then a Christmas Eve gathering. We were talking in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 about the realities were going on amongst the people of Israel, specifically under the leadership of King Ahaz, you might remember, and the promises that God was making to them through the prophet Isaiah about a new uh, reality that would come, preservation from first the attacking northern kingdoms and then from the oncoming attack of the Assyrians in chapter 9 of Isaiah. And God said in chapter 9 through the prophet Isaiah that a son would be born and the government would sit on his shoulders. And we talked about how the the then reality of that was the coming of King Hezekiah, who was the son uh, of King Ahaz. And of course, Hezekiah was only a partial fulfillment. It would ultimately point towards Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the whole Davidic kingdom, of which Hezekiah was kind of a, a forerunner or... Uh, or a, a, a portrait of, of the king to come that was Jesus. So I was thinking about that. I was thinking, well, let's finish the story. And let's talk about Hezekiah this morning. Let's talk about the fulfillment that kind of came about and some of the, the realities of hope that were experienced by the people under the leadership of King Hezekiah. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. Uh, we'll be there in a minute. 2 Kings chapter 18, if you... Would like a Bible, there's several on the back table. If you want to just listen, that's completely fine as well. 2 Kings chapter 18 is where we'll be in a few minutes. So you might remember in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophecy is that Ahaz has been making all these unholy alliances with Assyria. And basically, the reality for the Israelites is going to be that Assyria is eventually going to just kind of overrule all that you are and all that you're doing. And Israel is going to become basically what amounts to a vassal state, like a subservient uh, state to the greater Assyria. And that was happening in the days of Ahaz. But the prophecy was that God would send a son, of course, who we say is King Hezekiah, and ultimately who is Jesus, fulfills this in a global way uh, and in an eternal way. And Hezekiah, the government would sit on his shoulders, not on the king of Assyria's shoulders, and he would rule with justice And you might remember we kind of talked a little bit about Hezekiah. He brought about all kinds of reforms, if you read in the first several verses of 2 Kings 18. He brought all kinds of reforms to the people of God. Uh, He he reinstituted temple worship that had had long since passed under Ahaz. He redirected the people's hearts towards God. And he himself uh, pursued God in, 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 in vigor and in zeal. And it was said of him by the writer of Kings that he was, quote, a good king. Uh, And uh, we talked about this in previous weeks as well, that sometimes they're called bad kings, sometimes they're called good kings, all throughout this kind of royal kingdom uh, that is set up in Israel. But Hezekiah was kind of one of the good ones, and he followed God. So all of this is happening. Well, in so doing, Hezekiah said, well, I'm going to put my full dependence on God I'm no longer going to be subservient to Assyria. I'm going to withdraw, kind of sending all these payments and all this dependence on Assyria. And as you can imagine, Assyria was none too pleased with that. They liked having vassal subservient states who paid them money 
and they kind of just could rule over them. And so what we find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 18, about halfway through the chapter, is the Assyrians are pressing hard all around Judah. And they're shouting all kinds of accusations and hurling insults and leading to all kinds of temptation uh, towards these people. And King Hezekiah has a choice to make. He's been bold in declaring he's not going to serve Assyria, but now the armies have mounted. And where is he going to place his hope and how is he going to lead the people? Second Kings chapter 18, this is what it says. Verse 17. The king of Assyria, a guy named Sennacherib, sent his supreme commander, <clears throat> his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Washerman's Field. They called for the king and Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joha, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. The field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah this. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say that you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But you say to me, we're depending on the Lord our God. Well, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. You get what's going on, right? They're like, speak to us in Aramaic. We get that, but the people don't speak Aramaic. We don't want them to hear any of the things you're saying to us. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and to you that my master sent me to say these things? No. It was to all the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. That is in the Bible. Then the commander stood. Do with that what you want. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life, don't choose death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. 
Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hands of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim and Hena and Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply. Because the king had commanded them, do not answer him. So you get a picture of the scene. The Assyrians are there. Large armies surround them. And there is all kinds of mocking and humiliation going on of the people. Trying to speak to the population at large to get them to simply hand themselves back over to Assyria. What's striking to me is the way that this spokesman for the king of Assyria starts off this whole diatribe. He says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? This is a fascinating question, not just for this situation, but for life in general. Is it not? On what are you basing this confidence of yours? Or what makes you confident in life? What makes you confident in your existence and in your calling and all of these things? You know, confidence is often looked at as a purely secular reality, when in fact it is a deeply spiritual reality. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 uh, and verse 1, we're told that confidence is deeply related to two really important spiritual values, that of faith and hope, right? So that faith is confidence in things which are hoped for. And so we get this idea that faith is the result of confidence, right? Spiritual confidence. Faith, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've heard me talk about faith. That is that faith is much more active than intellectual. That hope is more of the stuff that's going on inside of us. Faith is the action we take on the basis of the hope that we have. And so faith is is active, it is is risky in some senses, but it is active, it is moving uh, on the basis of our hope. Uh, But the writer of Hebrews, there's the word confidence in there. He says, where there's confidence, there tends to be faith. And he says, there's confidence because there first existed hope, right? So faith is confidence in things hoped for. So where confidence exists, their hope existed first. And so if there's some level of significant confidence, we would say there's also some level of significant hope that, that belies it. If there's a lack of confidence, there's a lack of hope. And if there's no confidence, well then, there's no hope. But where there's significant hope, there's significant confidence. And where there's significant confidence, then there's acts of faith that are coming out of it. This is what the writer of Hebrews says about Confidence, And so when the question is asked to the people of Israel from this messenger of Assyria, where is your confidence? This is actually a fascinating and radically important question for us to be asking ourselves constantly. That is, where is my confidence coming from? Is it rooted in the hope I have in God? Or is it rooted in any other thing in this world that we're told to place our confidence in? Ourselves? Our government? A religious system? 
But for the people, there seems to be this level and depth of confidence that comes from significant hope that is causing them, Hezekiah and then the people, to move in faith, or the active move of faith here is to stand firm in their faith. And what's fascinating to me in this story, and is always true in our lives, is that our faith, and therefore our confidence, and therefore at the core our hope, is always tested by our enemies. Our confidence is always tested by our enemies, and therefore the source, the true source of our hope, is always tested by our enemies. Because we don't have any length of time to talk about it this morning, I'm asking you to just to take my word for it, but I would love to have conversation with you elsewhere. If you take this picture of what's happening here uh, between Judah and Assyria with King Hezekiah, and you move it into the New Testament, here's what I want to suggest to you is going on um, spiritually. That is that Assyria is representative of the forces of evil, call them Satan, as they're moving against the people of God. Hezekiah, though for good morality stories, uh, would be fun to think that we're Hezekiah. Hezekiah is representative of Jesus Christ. And who are we? We're the people sitting on the wall, right? Wondering what should we do in this moment. Who are we going to give our allegiance to? The conquering, uh, the seemingly conquering king uh, or God himself? And so what I want to suggest to you this morning is that if we picture this story in that spiritual overlay, there is all kinds of application to the ongoing realities of our life. Your confidence and therefore your hope in God will always be tested by the enemy by Satan himself, by his minions, by the systems of this world, by our flesh, which is, Paul says, our enemy. It will always be tested. And the means by which our flesh, this world, and Satan, and the powers underneath him test our hope and our confidence and our faith is always the same. So I have great news for you. You can know how you're going to be tested. Here's the difficult news. It's really hard to resist the tests, right? He always does, it always happens the same way, and it's no different here in the the story of Assyria coming against the people of God than in other places, but it's really hard to stand firm against. The first way that our confidence is tested is through temptation. Temptation. And what's fascinating to me about this story is that there's incredible parallels to the way the people of God are tempted to the very way Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. And that shouldn't surprise us because this is always the way of the enemy. What's the first way they're tempted? Do you remember hearing the story? God's not here. Don't rely on him. He's not here. And even, this is a neat little twist from the enemy. He's not here because you kicked him out. That's what he said, remember? Hezekiah had removed all the idolatrous worship. He had done a good thing. But the attacking people are like, you actually kicked out God when you did that. Well, it's no different than in the garden, right? Because when the tempter comes to the people, what is his basis of temptation? His basis of temptation to, the, to Adam and Eve is, God doesn't want you to be near him. He doesn't want you to be like him. That's why he's telling you not to eat from these trees. He doesn't want to have that close, near connection to you. He's not here. He doesn't care about you the way he claims to care about you. That's not who God is. And the same way the Assyrians are saying that, God's not here. He's not going to protect you. 
You probably even kicked him out. Think about the ways that, that the enemy tempts you sometimes when you're in a struggle. What's the first thing he says to you? Well, you're, you're a big failure, and so why would God protect someone like you? Right? You kicked him out. Now he's not going to be here. Or he doesn't care about these things. God's not here. He doesn't care about you in these ways. It's not how it works. The messenger of these series said, God's not here. First temptation to our confidence. And it is a, as simple as it seems to hear it. It's a rattling temptation to our confidence in God. Because we are very prone to believe it. The second temptation is a shortcut. This is, this is, all, this is so hard to resist, but it's always true of the temptations we face. Do you hear all the things that the king, uh, that the messenger of Assyria promised to the people? Do you hear them all? I'll give you 22,000 horses or 2,000 horses or whatever it was. There'll be more horses than you can even put people on them. He's like, I'm going to give you a land. You're going to have all kinds of fruit and beauty and glory and water. And, I'll, and guess what? I'll even take you to a better land. Now, who has made these promises to the people before? God, right? It's the whole basis of the covenant he made with Abraham and is renewing constantly. I'll be your God. I'll be with you. And I'm going to give you a land and it's going to be overflowing with milk and honey. It's going to be more than you can even contain. But there's ebbs and flows to it based on the people's allegiance to God. And so the king of Assyria here is going, listen, the situation doesn't look good for you right now. If you would just come and bow before me, I'll give you all of this stuff. And you don't have to go through the long journey of covenant relationship with God to have it. And yet it's always a mirage, right? Did the Assyrians have good intentions for the people of Judah? Like, were they really going to deliver on this promise? In the same way, the temptation to our confidence in God is always the same. Is it not? Here's this thing you can have right now. And it never tastes or feels after the fact like it seemed it would in the moment. And in the same way, Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. So it should not surprise us. What does the serpent say to Adam and Eve? Oh, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because then you'll be like him. It's a shortcut temptation. That's what's exciting to them. We've talked about this countless times. Friends, as, as much as you love apples, the apple was not enticing to Adam and Eve. Let's just get over that Sunday school reality. The enticement to Adam and Eve was they could be like God. Power, control, existence. It, it was a shortcut around the need to have a dynamic connection to God and to cultivate relationship with God. And instead, kind of just offered them the reality. Now, did the apple deliver on the promise? Of course not. And the same for us and the confidence that we long to have and the hope that we have in God, it is quickly shaken when we are offered tempting shortcuts. True? It's true. And look at the third way he tempts us. Classic. By twisting the words of God. Twisting the words of God. You hear what he said? He said, look, the only reason we're attacking you is because God told us to. Now, the problem with that is that it's half true. It's not an out-and-out complete lie. God had prophesied when Ahaz was king that this was going to happen. But he had also prophesied that a son was going to rise up and they would be defeated. Well, the Assyrians didn't mention that part. 
right? They simply said, hey, God told us to come. We would leave you alone, but God told us to come. And that's why we're here. And so you should just, just give up on this whole mess. You twist the words of God. And is that not exactly what happened in the garden? When the serpent came to Adam and Eve, and what did the serpent say? Twisting the words of God. Is it true that God said you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He didn't say this one tree that God has said you should not eat from. Serpent said, isn't it true that God said you shouldn't eat from any tree? Isn't that what he said? Carefully and craftily twisting the words of God to tempt us to jump at these things. And isn't it the same way when we face temptation in our life? That the words of God are carefully twisted to make them seem much more judgmental or much more harsh or much more overbearing or much more cultured in religion than in love than they originally were given. Friends, we are prone to all three of these means of temptation. Now, a good sermon would say, here's the way that you resist these temptations. I am not here to deliver a good sermon to you. I'm here to deliver the gospel to you. Right? Here's the way you can resist these temptations, and there's only one way. You look to the king. What do the people do? They look to the king. They stay quiet because Hezekiah told them to. And they wait to hear from the king for what to do. In the same way as your confidence is routinely shaken. I'm not picking on you. I'm just speaking from personal experience. Maybe you're nothing like me. Maybe you are a stellar Jesus follower. My confidence is regularly shaken. I am tempted with shortcuts. I'm tempted by the twisting of the words of God. I'm tempted to believe God's not here or he doesn't care or he doesn't care about someone like me. Constantly. Constantly. The only hope we have is to look to the king. And the people look to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, it will go on to say in the next chapter, he tears his garment, he gets with his leaders, he seeks the counsel of God, he hears from God that the, that the, that the, the nation will not fall, and he stands strong, though broken, and God prevails. Do the people do anything glorious in this story? No. That's the gospel. Jesus stands in the midst of our shaken confidence and he shows us what it looks like to follow God. And in so much as we cling to him, we too have confidence and have hope. And what's fascinating Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, was led into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted. How would the devil tempt Jesus? You guessed it. The first way he tempted him was to say, God's not here. You might be like, I don't remember that in that story. He never said that. Well, listen to how he tempted him. Remember what he said? He said, hey, you haven't eaten in 40 days? What's up with that? You're the son of God. There's a stone over there. Turn that into bread. You can do that. And Jesus says, oh no, man will not live by bread alone, but by 
the word of God that proceeds from the words that proceed from the mouth of God. What's going on here? We have to understand who is the bread maker in the Bible? The people or God? Right? This is this is a Passover, or excuse me, a wilderness, a journey to the to the promised land temptation. It is God who delivers the bread every day for his people. And it is right on the heels of this temptation uh, of Jesus that the disciples come to him and say, hey, Jesus, tell us how to pray. And what's the first thing he says in his prayer? Well, one of the first things he says. says, Pray every day for your daily bread. It doesn't say go make your bread because God is the bread maker. The first temptation that Satan gives to Jesus in the wilderness is what? Hey, God's not here. He's not providing for you. Do something about it. You're strong. You can do something about it. But it sounds an awful lot like we're tempted, doesn't it? Hey, you've got to work at it. You've got to be a really religious person. God's not doing anything. You've got to earn it. Or this world, if you're going to be successful, it's all based on you, your performance, your, 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 your ability, your, your production value. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I will not subsist on human food, but my identity will be built on the words of my father. Where Adam and Eve failed, and where you and I have very shaky confidence, Jesus stood strong. What was the second way that Jesus was tempted? You remember it. Satan took him up to a high place. He said, look at all of these places. This world right here. So if you bow down and worship me right now, Jesus, I'll give it all to you. He's offering him a shortcut. Second way that Satan always tempts us. Because Jesus knew very well that this was what God had given him to rule, but he was going to have to go through a very difficult circumstance including a very difficult journey of life, to accomplish it. And there was going to have to be obedience, and there was going to have to be hope that, proved, that, that bred confidence, that bred incredible risky faith called the cross, that would then deliver the world to bow down before Jesus. Satan says, listen, I've got a way easier way. You can have the same exact thing. Just bow down to me and worship me now. Now, was Satan going to really deliver that? Perhaps in some small way. And yet, what does Jesus say? No. Whereas Adam and Eve bit, and where you and I have incredibly shaky confidence, Jesus stands strong. And then, Jesus, in the third way he's tempted, is the twisting of the words of God. Remember what Satan says in the third temptation to Jesus? He says, hey, I'll take you up to this high point. Throw yourself off of here. Because God has said, remember he said this? God has said he will not let a stone, your foot won't touch a stone. The angels will surely come and save you. And Jesus says, no, to put God to the test. I know what God has said in his fullness. What he's delivered me here to do is actually to be bruised and to be broken for the sake of my people. And whereas Adam and Eve bit, and you and I have incredibly shaky confidence, Jesus stood strong. Why? Because his hope in God was perfect. And therefore, his confidence was secure. And therefore, there was incredible realities of faith. 
How do you overcome temptation? Forget some seven-step process. There's good in that, but forget it for a minute. Your only hope is if you're being led by the right king, and your only hope is if you look to that king in the moment to deepen your hope. Well, the first way that, that, that we're tested by the enemies is through temptation. The second way is through, that doesn't sound great, but I don't know a better way to say it, through, through like psychological attacks. Do you hear the, the last couple things that the Assyrian um, messenger said to the people? You heard the one because you laughed after we read it. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, don't, don't give in to us. Well, you're going to eat your excrement and drink your urine, right? This is a wonderful, can you imagine that? And probably there was like some level of perceived truth to that reality if you were the people. There's a massive army surrounding you. How much food do you have stored up, you know? There's all these bombastic threats that are being made at them. Boy, it sounds an awful lot like the way Jesus was spoken to in his earthly life. And the accusations that were cast on him as he hung on a cross. And what's the last thing they say? Well, fine. You won't give in to any of our temptations or to our threat. He says, well, let me just tell you this. Look at history. No one has ever defeated us. All the other people believed in their gods, and they're gone. And you're going to believe in your god? No king has ever stood against Assyria, and no god of any king has ever saved his people from Assyria in the same way that death has always had the last victory over life. And yet, as Jesus hung on a cross, living a sinless life and resisting all temptation, receiving all of the accusations, and perhaps the last final straw when Satan whispered in his ear, no one has ever defeated this enemy. He turned to God and said, God, why have you forsaken me? Experiencing the depth of pain in that moment. And then on the third day, he rose victorious over the final enemy that is death. In the same way, if you go on to read in chapter 19 of King, 2 Kings, you will find that God miraculously delivers his people from this oppressing enemy. He sends them away, and, and, and many of them are, 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 are killed in battle without, without any loss on the part of the people, simply because of the confidence of a king who has a depth of hope in his God that enables him to act in incredible faith. Friends, I wish I could promise you a different life. But you will leave this place, and today, this very day, you will encounter many of the things I've just talked about. And I wish I could give you a better forecast, but the likelihood is that you will fail today. That your confidence will be cut at the knees, and you will fail today. If you think that many of the Israelites weren't ready to to lay down their weapons and go live in Assyria, then you have not read any of the Old Testament, right? I'm sure the bulk of the Israelites were ready to hand everything over to the Assyrians to protect themselves. The reason it didn't happen 
was the king. And this morning, as the enemy will no doubt attempt to re-tempt you in the midst of your failure, that, well, God's not here then because you stink at life and you're really bad at following him and how's he going to protect someone like you? Look no farther than Hezekiah to point you to the ultimate king that is Jesus who stands with his people even in the midst of their failure so that his hope can be their hope. So that his confidence can be their confidence. So that his faith will be their faith. Jesus has won the victory we could never win. And we need not take up arms because he has done it. And in his resurrection, he has proved that his hope was rightly placed. So far be it for me to suggest anything other than that you would look to your King Jesus, that you would embrace the same hope that he has, the same confidence that he displays, and therefore the same faith that he renders. Can I pray with you?